Oh, there it goes. Sorry, my iPad did a thing that I didn't expect. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Good deal. Fantastic. Uh, Well, while we're getting ready to um, dive into our study series, we're continuing our study uh, using the book of Mark to study through Jesus uh, day by day, final week in Jerusalem, the week that we call Holy Week. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11-ish or so, 12. Uh, And since it's now the modern era, I have to say, along with turn in your Bible, I have to say some of you may need to turn on your Bible (laughs) and find it. We do have some outlines. If you didn't receive an outline when you came in, just raise your hand. We've got some extra copies for you right there. Do I need that? No, I, I think I'm okay. I just... I just have to find it. It's going to take me a minute. My iPad. Having, having technical difficulties this morning. Anybody ever been there? Huh? What, did, what is the name of this sermon? Anybody can you tell me on the outline? Oh, that's a real creative name. Way to go, Kenyon. Really stretch the gray matter for that name. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't find it at all. That's okay. We'll be all right. Um, okay, so this is Tuesday, real creative name. I thought about, at, at one time when I was thinking about this series, I thought about, you know, we, we titled it Seven Days in Jerusalem, and I told you, I thought that title sounded like a good title for a 70s classic rock album. I could just see the album covering the whole bit. And so I thought about, would it be fun to name every, every week's sermon after a song that has a weekday in the title? So this week I was singing Leonard Skinner all week long, Tuesday's Gone with the Wind, anyway. But ultimately, that, I didn't think that worked on the page. So this sermon is just called Tuesday. Um, now, uh, I, have to, I have to do a little disclaimer before we dive in because um, I guess it's, a, it's really more of an apology slash disclaimer. Uh, whenever I, you know, conceived of this study series, I thought, oh, this will be neat. Um, you know, six weeks through the Lent season, six days uh, of, or seven days of Holy Week, you know, uh, and then leading up to Easter Sunday. And so I looked at the calendar and worked out the math, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then comes Easter Sunday. I thought, okay, that works on the calendar. But what I didn't do um, was, uh, and, 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 and I was, and I, and I had this, the awareness of what I've, what I've expressed to you that among all the gospel writers, Mark tends to help us keep track of time through Holy Week. So I thought, okay, that's what we'll do. We'll follow the gospel of Mark, and we'll do Sunday by Sunday, day by day, uh, through Jesus, uh, you know, Holy Week. Okay, so that much worked out, and so we planned it, and we said, okay, here we go. That's what we're going to do. And then um, I got to Tuesday, and what I didn't plan ahead for is how much action Mark records for Tuesday. Tuesday, believe it or not, is according to the, the amount of space and words given by Mark uh, to Jesus' day on Tuesday. It's by far the longest treatment of any day of Holy Week, uh, uh, and, that's, and that's on Tuesday. So having said that, what I have to kind of apologize for is there's no way that we can cover everything that Mark has recorded for Tuesday um, in, in one setting here this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to start. And then when it comes time to be done, we're going to be done. Is that okay? 
All right. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, but, but so in case we don't get, and I know we won't get through it all, so let me give you maybe a couple of what I would suggest to be overarching themes of what's going on um, on Tuesday, at least, again, we're, we're sticking with Mark's um, account. Um, and so what, what we're going to see, and, and depending on how far we get, you'd see this all the way through, is that in general, what we have is a series of vignettes and the theme tends to be this question and response almost in a, ch- in a challenging kind of way between Jesus and the religious leaders. That's what's going on on Tuesday. And, and by all appearances, the entirety of what Mark records on Tuesday happens within the temple complex. And so not in the, don't think, sanctuary, but like the, the temple in Jerusalem was a huge um, a huge compound. When you get into the temple, you're actually still outside, and it's huge grounds with outer courts and inner courts and covered porticos and all kinds of architecture. And so, uh, so it, it, it appears that the entirety of, of what Mark records on Tuesday happens uh, in the temple, um, and it's this series of back and forth kind of um, where Jesus, the religious leaders are posing to Jesus what they think, what they hope apparently is a difficult question that would maybe put Jesus on the spot. And then you see Jesus kind of like with a, you know, I don't know much about fencing, you know, but one of those kind of deals or uh, I don't know much about boxing either, but maybe it's a, like a stick and move and counterpunch kind of thing that's going on. So you just have this back and forth. Um, and, and woven through all of that, um, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of themes that I think are important to notice, and I'll try to point it out as we go, but certainly if you just sit down and read it through, you can, can't miss it. But um, as the tension, uh, as, the, as, the, as the scenes go by, uh, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is just ratcheting up, ratcheting up, ratcheting up. I mean, at every step along the way, it's just more and more and more intense. Uh, between the tension between Jesus and the, and the religious, religious leaders. And simultaneously with that, there's this theme uh, that Mark is drawing our eye to that'll, that'll become important as the week unfolds, uh, and that is the role of the crowds. Um, the, it, as, as this, from where we are today, at least, uh, we're going to see that, that, that you, and, and we have to be careful that we have to nuance this because as it unfolds, and you, you already know how the story goes, but but, the, but the, the crowds are in support of Jesus. Or at least we could say the crowds are in support of Jesus' message, right? That might be the more nuanced way that we need to say it uh, to account for how it's going to unfold as it, as it moves forward. So, um, so, so there's a couple of themes that we that kind of weave throughout the day. What did I say, Mark chapter 11, 12, somewhere in there? Okay, so um, actually I'm going to begin. Do you all have outlines where does the outline begin? Which, which uh, at the end of, end of chapter 11. Okay, all right. So the end of chapter 11, uh, verse 27. You guys are so helpful. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Seriously. Um, okay, so Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Here we go. This is, this is almost the beginning of Tuesday. I think we should say that the beginning of Tuesday is the wrap-up of where we left off last week with the fig tree, but we're going to begin uh, with when Jesus uh, arrives in Jerusalem and in, into the temple. So here we go, Mark 11, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again. As Jesus was walking around the temple, the chief priests, legal ex- experts, and elders came to him, and they asked, 
What kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave this authority? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus says, I have a question for you. Give me an answer. Then I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Here's Jesus' question. Was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Answer me. They argued among themselves, right? Let's huddle up like family feud. We're going to get together. We're going to huddle up and argue, talk about the answer. They turn around. They say, if we say it's of heavenly origin. No, they didn't turn around yet. They're talking to each other. If we say it's of heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought John was a prophet. That is the crowd. And so they answered Jesus. Here we go. What do you say when you (laughs) find yourself in a pinch? We don't know. (laughs) And Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. So first of all, let's talk about these things. Ah, thank you. I appreciate it, although, yeah, that's okay. That's great. Thank you. Um, so first of all, what's the, what's the mention of these things? What are they referring to when they say, who gives you authority to do these things? Well, it's, it's Tuesday morning. It's a fresh day. Uh, so what are, they, what, are, what are these leaders referring to that has gotten them so up in arms, right? Well, I'm going to suggest that what they're referring to is what we talked about the last couple of weeks, which for them would have been the previous two days. First of all, Jesus entrance into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday, and secondly, his demonstration in the temple on Tuesday, right? In both instances, and we took the time to point this out uh, as we were studying it, but in both instances, the religious leaders uh, have very good reason to be, uh, let's just say, at least unsettled by what Jesus did, right? Because backing up 48 hours to Sunday, Uh, roughly 48 hours, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is essentially um, subverting Pilate's entrance into Jerusalem. Pilate had come into Jerusalem with his parade of war horses and soldiers and swords and chariots and so on, right? This big military entrance reflecting all the power of Rome and all the power of Caesar, the occupying force over Israel at the time. And then here comes Jesus from the other side of town riding into Jerusalem on a young, small, humble donkey colt, maybe even having to hold his feet up in the air as he comes into Jerusalem in his parade. It is the antithesis of what Pilate had displayed, this display of power and might and glitz and glamour and all of that and intimidation, perhaps above all. And Jesus comes in in the opposite way. He comes in humble and lowly on a donkey. It is is peaceable. It is anti-intimidating. I mean, it's un, completely unintimidating. Everything that Jesus is doing is turning everything that Pilate had done, representing on behalf of Caesar, turning it upside down. Well, why would that be upsetting to the religious leaders? Well, because the religious leaders, you can think of their position in the society at the time. They are, they are snugged in right between there's, there's Caesar and the power of Rome, and essentially the religious aristocracy, the local religious aristocracy, is ruling on behalf of Rome, and their job, they can remain comfortable so long as they keep the peace and continue to collect the, the tribute taxes on behalf of Caesar, uh, Rome, and for, and for Caesar. So they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And so Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem uh, puts that perhaps in jeopardy. It's a potential 
to unsettle the entire community, certainly around the Passover uh, season. And then, of course, on, two, on, on Monday, the demonstration in the temple has direct implications upon the religious leaders and their standing. Jesus had essentially subverted their entire function in the, in the community in his symbolic destruction of the temple on Monday. And so they come up. Who gives you authority to do these things? Now, we need to recognize just for a moment the perspective that these religious leaders are coming from with regard to authority. You see, because essentially their presumption goes something like this. Look, Mr. Rabbi from Galilee, there is a system here, the way this thing works. There's a system to the way the world works, and it's essentially a hierarchy. And we know the system full well. In our case, it starts with Caesar and Rome, and then it trickles down to, you know, various rank and file, you know, various strata within the hierarchy. And we know our place. We know where our authority comes from. We are here as the designated delegates, right, of wherever we are in the hierarchy. Uh, and our authority comes from, we are legitimated, let's say it this way, we are legitimated by the Roman authorities. We have a place in the system. And so, Mr. Jesus, we want to know where is your place in the system? Where does your authority go? Who told you you could do all this? We've got this thing all set up and well-oiled and it's working smoothly and we're hoping like heck it continues to work smoothly. And we want to know where your authority comes from. The the entire perspective, and Jesus is going to expose this in just a moment, but the entire perspective behind their question is that there is a system, there are the powers that be in the society, and we know where our place is, we know where our fit is, and we want to know where your authority comes from. And their presumption is this top-down powers that be kind of deal, which explains why Jesus asks the question about John the Baptist in the way that he does. Was John the Baptist, where did John the Baptist, essentially, where did, where did John the Baptist, what was, what was his standing? What was his footing? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Now, when he says, was it from heaven, he's not talking about, did it fall out of the sky? It's, it's essentially a synonym for, is it uh, from, from God? Did John the Baptist's authority come from God or did it come from man? Was John the Baptist, was his calling, was his mandate from God? Or from man. Now, before we jump in and talk a little more about John the Baptist, notice what Jesus has done. They've asked a question about Jesus' authority, and their presumption is that authority is vested by the system. That authority is vested to any particular uh, individual or whatever it might be. That authority comes from the system. Authority comes from the powers that be. And once the powers that be grant any of us authority, then, and only then, do we have authority. But notice that Jesus is really asking a deeper question. Is there perhaps a different way to think about authority? Is there perhaps a completely different way even to think about where authority comes from? Maybe, just maybe, there is an entirely different source, foundation for authority, and Jesus, in fact, names it. What about authority that comes from God? 
Now, that's, that's you know, I'm, now this is me talking to you. That's a, maybe a, a religious way to say it. But we could say it in a non-religious way. You know, sometimes there's a certain authority that comes not from the system, not from the hierarchy, not from the powers that be, but there's an authority that comes from what's right. And what Jesus is revealing to us is that there are times, both then and now, that there's a right, there's a right side up, there's a wholeness, there's, a, again, back to religious language, there is a righteousness that may or may not be reflected in the system whatsoever. And what Jesus is saying, we've titled this series, The City of Truth, because Jesus is bringing truckloads of truth into Jerusalem. And what Jesus is implying here, I want to suggest what Jesus is implying here, is that there is an authority that comes from what's right that may or may not be reflected regardless of the system. And I want to suggest that it's not coincidental that Jesus brings John the Baptist into this conversation. John the Baptist, of course, now we're going way back to the beginning of the gospel writer's story. John the Baptist being Jesus, well, Jesus' cousin, but also in, from a ministry standpoint, John the Baptist was Jesus' uh, forerunner, announcing and preparing the way for Jesus. Now, you know, if you think about John the Baptist, you, you have those two connections. Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. John the Baptist was Jesus' um, uh, forerunner. But in addition to that, we need to recognize that Jesus shared a perspective and a passion with John the Baptist, that the, the content of Jesus' ministry is very consistent with the content of John the Baptist's ministry. There may be some exceptions. Um, but when you, you know, and I think it's Luke who gives us the most substance of what John the Baptist's message was. And some of you may remember it, that, you know, what we remember about John the Baptist is he called people out to the outside of the city uh, and invited them to be baptized in the, in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's, we should probably talk about that. I mean, that's completely scandalous, right? I mean, this is Jerusalem, after all. The temple is just right over there. That's where you go for forgiveness of sins. But John the Baptist comes along, and he says, no, I want you to come out here and be baptized in this murky Jordan River water because forgiveness from God is that freely available. I mean, this is a scandalous act of grace. He is undermining the temple structure, the protocols and rituals and all that stuff. I mean, that in and of itself is a, is a completely scandalous thing. Um, but then Luke goes a little bit further, and he gives us some substance and content of John the Baptist's message. And what we get is John essentially says, if you got two cloaks, you got one too many. Give one of them to somebody who doesn't have any. If you got extra food, you got too much. Give the extra to somebody who doesn't have any. And then Luke also includes that John the Baptist tells the tax collectors and soldiers, which is an interesting reference, to stop cheating people, right? So, so John, in a nutshell, this is the theme we've been talking about for a couple weeks now, in a nutshell, the theme of John the Baptist's message is loving justice. He's calling people out to the Jordan, out to, outside the city to receive this baptism for forgiveness of sins, God's forgiveness, his grace is available as Jordan Water River, is as, as available as Jordan Water River, and, and, and God is calling us to practice loving justice toward one another. John is dealing with the issue of the haves and have-nots, right? That's what, he's, that's what he's dealing with. Now, in their context, and we've, we've talked about this through this series, um, 
when you fold in the history and the context and the background into these stories, um, I, I want to say, and I've heard, I've heard others say this, but, but once, you, once you start to understand the history and the context, um, these stories almost kind of interpret themselves. Um, and so there's a, there's a reason that the chief priests in this confrontation in the temple, there's a reason that the chief priests couldn't deny that John the Baptist's ministry was mandated and given by God. And, the re- and Mark tells you the reason, because of the crowds, right? What's he saying? Well, everybody loved John the Baptist. Everybody loved his message. Why? Because they were broke. They were hurting. They were oppressed because of the Roman occupation. The, the taxation burden uh, was ratcheting up and up and up, uh, lower and lower wages. I mean, people, uh, people were struggling. People were hurting. And John the Baptist's message was a message of relief, recovery. Let's get together. Let's support one another. Let's take care of one another, right? That's what John is dealing with. Well, the crowds loved it. In fact, in the guts of the story, um, when the story is told about why it is that John was eventually um, uh, arrested and put to death, um, what's mentioned specifically is not so much John's message, but his popularity, that the authorities were concerned about the level of influence that John the Baptist had gained because he was so popular. And why was his message popular? Because he was for the folks. Right? That's what's going on. And so, uh, and so that, at the time of where we are on Tuesday in the temple, that was in the past. John has now been arrested and, and well, we would say martyred. He was killed. Um, uh, but still, his popularity among the people, among the rank and file, uh, is apparently great and strong enough for the religious leaders to realize that they were in a bit of a pinch if they denied the legitimacy of John the Baptist's ministry. And so they couldn't do that. So they said, they punted, essentially. You know, we don't know. Um, And so this becomes the first of a series of um, question and retort, stick and move, counterpunch um, between Jesus and the authorities. Okay, so let's move on. uh, Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it to the tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one. And that one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asked him, So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture, he says? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's amazing in our eyes. They wanted, and Mark says, they wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew he had told the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. There's that theme again. So they left him and went away. 
Now, it's interesting here, you know, um, this, this parable might be a little bit obscure to us, at least at first, but Mark gives us the, 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 uh, the key that we need to understand what Jesus is saying. His hearers certainly got it, right? So I'll just kind of cut to the chase. Uh, who is the man who built the vineyard and dug the well and built a tower and then went away on a long trip? Who is that? Well, that's, that's God. That's God the Father, right? And so he left these, he leaves uh, these tenants in charge of his vineyard. Who's that? Well, that's the religious leaders, yeah? And so then God, uh, the, the, the vineyard owner from far away sends servant after servant after servant to go back and check on the vineyard. Who are they? Those are the prophets. Jesus calls it, Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets, right? Throughout the history of, of the Jewish people, that's, uh, that's the pattern. God sends a prophet, they beat the prophets, they kill the prophets, et cetera, et cetera. So then finally, the vineyard owner sends a son whom he dearly loves. Who's that? Well, it's Christ himself. And so Jesus then tells this part of the parable that at the, at the time of the telling hadn't played out yet. But what he says is, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And Mark has already told us that the religious leaders have already decided that they want to kill this prophet from Galilee, this rabbi from Galilee. And Jesus is revealing to them their own hearts in this, in this moment with this parable. Now, again, to, to press in a little bit further, this parable is typically, and rightly so, I think, typically referred to as the parable of the wicked tenants, is what this is called. But I think it's worthwhile, again, because we're trying to track with the history, the context, the backdrop, and all that. I think it's worthwhile uh, to look closely at the way, the story that Jesus tells and the way that Jesus tells um, the story. Look what, look what he has in the mouths uh, of the tenants. Uh, it says, now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they'll respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, listen to what they say. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And then what do they say? And the inheritance will be ours. And so what Jesus is doing, these tenants, yes, they're wicked, but they're not just mindlessly wicked. They have a specific motive. The inheritance will be ours. What's that motive? Greed. Their motive is greed. That's what Jesus is saying. You guys are uh, uh, murderous, but not just murderous. You're greedy. Murderous and greedy. Murder, murderously greedy, right? How about that? That's, that's the connection, right? So again, we have this theme. I mean, this, the tension it's just ratcheting up and up and up. I mean, if Sunday wasn't enough, then we have Monday. And if Monday wasn't enough, now we have Tuesday. And with each scene, with each encounter, the tension is being raised and raised and raised. And now we come to this. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're genuine, and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. That's really great translation. This is the common English Bible. They're just really buttering him up, right? 
So does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? And since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to him, why are you testing me? Bring me a coin and show it to me. And they brought one. We'll come back to that. He said to them, whose image and inscription is on this? Caesar's, they replied. Caesar's image is on the coin. And Jesus said to him, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And Mark adds, his reply left them overcome with wonder. They were amazed. They were blown away, dumbfounded, mystified by this response. Okay, um, I'm guessing that all of us recognize the phrase at the heart of this particular story. I'll say it in uh, the uh, a bit more formal language. Uh, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God that which is God's. That's kind of the old language. This, this phrase is, um, well, I mean, this is like, in our collective conscious, right? This is a phrase that you hear very often in uh, uh, social discussion, political discussions. Uh, you hear it uh, frequently. And, I mean, this is, this is kind of my way to say it. This, this phrase is typically understood to mean something like um, uh, Christ commands us to give our political loyalty to the government and our religious loyalty to God, right? And so we typically understand this phrase when it's, when it's, you know, plucked out of the air and spoken in the context of a social conversation. It tends to mean something like that. Uh, and, and, I, and I just want to say, uh, and, and I think you know this as well, this has had devastating effects throughout history. Um, we go back to um, uh, the history in Germany when Hitler was ratcheting up his uh, role and function as an autocratic dictator and even the, beginning, the beginnings of the persecution by the German army, the Third Reich, against the Jewish people. There were many German Christians who objected to that, seeing through it all that it was unjust and unfair and those German Christians were told by other Christians, what were they told? Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Shut up, get in line, and cooperate with the government because Jesus commanded us to do it. A little bit closer uh, in, to us in time and geography in our own history here in America during the civil rights era, when some Americans saw through the segregation laws that they were unjust and unfair and oppressive, and those Americans staged uh, many peaceful demonstrations protesting those social and civil laws, many other Christian Americans spoke these words to those Americans and said, your, your Christ has commanded you to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You are compelled to obey the laws of the land. You need to calm down, sit down, and obey the law. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. 
we could go on and on. And perhaps you're familiar with other instances where this statement has been used in that way, where, where somehow, some way, Christ has commanded us to give our political loyalty to the government and then to give our religious or spiritual, which generally turns out to be some kind of invisible loyalty to God. All of which, it, it, seeing it tragically applied in that way, it begs the question, <laughs> is there a better way to understand <laughs> what's going on here? Isn't, doesn't it have to be the case that that represents a tragic misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying? Well, I want to suggest that it does represent a tragic misunderstanding, that Jesus isn't saying anything of the sort. I think, in fact, he's saying something quite different. Let's look at it, the situation. So they, who's they? Well, it's probably the they that Mark has had in view, this, this collection uh, of chief priests, elders, and scribes, kind of this religious aristocracy uh, in and around the, the temple in Jerusalem. So they send some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus in his words when they come. And they ask this question uh, about taxes. Should we pay taxes? Should we, should we obey Caesar's law or should we not obey Caesar's law? Uh, and it's certainly, certainly a good question. You can see that it is, on, the one, on one level, it's a legitimate trap, right? If Jesus, if Jesus says uh, we shouldn't pay uh, taxes, well, that's, that's um, what's the word for, for treason? There'll be treason against, against Caesar. Um, but Jesus says we should pay taxes. Then there are going to be at least some and perhaps many um, devout Jewish people who, who see paying taxes to Caesar as an act of uh, betrayal, uh, to betray God. In fact, the, it's interesting, the, um, the Romans' word, what they called the tax paid by the the Israel to Rome, they, they refer to it as tribute. That's almost to add insult to injury. So not only are we going to tax you like crazy, we're going we're gonna to refer to this tax like it's an act of worship, right? And so, so Jesus is, at least for the moment, Jesus is in a bit of a bind here. So it says, verse 15, Jesus recognized their deceit, and he said to him, why are you testing me? And he asked for a coin, and they brought one. Now, this is interesting. Uh, historians tell us that during this time uh, around Israel, there were two different uh, currencies. There were two different coin currencies that were around the landscape. And one was the typical Roman coinage which had Caesar's image on it, along with a statement proclaiming Caesar as the divine son of God, right? Which, of course, according to Jewish law, is not only, though, the Jewish law uh, uh, forbids graven images, and so the, the image itself of Caesar is a violation of God's law, and then certainly to proclaim Caesar as the divine son of God. I mean, the very coinage itself is... Uh, it would be forbidden by Jewish law. And so for that reason, many Jewish people wouldn't carry that Roman coinage. And so for that very reason, they had alternative coinage 
that was free of any such images, right? And most devout Jewish people would, uh, would carry the, the coinage that, was, that didn't have uh, Caesar's image. And so here's this moment in the temple where these people come to Jesus and say, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, give me a coin. <laughs> and which kind of coin do they produce? The one with the graven image of Caesar on it. So here's these high-minded, religious, high-horse people who have come to Jesus to trap him with an ingenious trap. Granted, I mean, let's give them credit. It's an ingenious trap. But very quickly, Jesus sets a trap of his own, and it has sprung. He has revealed their duplicity, which is exactly what Mark says. Jesus uh, knows their deceit, and he's revealed it. And you know, I mean, let's just pause and say what we already know. I mean, isn't it true that whether it's then, there, or here and now, anytime someone comes at another with some high-minded religious critique, there's bound to be hypocrisy in that dynamic somewhere. Isn't that true? Like we say, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? And what we all know is that we all live in glass houses. Isn't that true? All right, so, so this is what's going on in this moment. So these, these folks have, you know, flipped Jesus this coin. He holds it up. <laughs> and now everyone knows that these Pharisees, Herodians as they're called, even in their high-minded religious kind of furrowed brow, trying to trap Jesus, even they themselves are carrying uh, betrayal of God in their own pockets. So Jesus says, uh, they brought one and he said to him, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. So the question is, how do we understand this statement, which is so memorable? How do we understand this statement in its context? Notice the question that Jesus asks before he makes the well-known statement. Whose image is on this coin? It is significant that in the language that Mark wrote in the Gospel of Mark, the word for image there is icon, which would have been exactly the same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which these folks would have grown up reading and studying, the, what's called the Septuagint. In the Genesis account, uh, written in the Septuagint in the Greek language, when it says to us in our language, let us make man in our image. So in his image, he created them, male and female. There too, the Greek word would have been exactly the same, icon. Let us make man in our image. And so Jesus says, whose icon? is on this coin. Caesar's. And Jesus says, then give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. Notice that Jesus has made, with his preliminary question, he made the connection between belonging and image. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Then give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The coin possesses Caesar's image, then give it to Caesar. But give God 
what belongs to God and what Jesus knew and what they knew is the moment you invoke the word icon, we're thinking Genesis 1. The coin has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar. You have God's image on you. You belong to God. So, is Jesus answering their question? Honestly, it's difficult for me to say. It's difficult for me to, it's diff- so, so what's the answer to the original question? I don't really know, honestly. I don't know. But what I do know is the, the final part of Jesus saying, give to God what belongs to God. That, that is a deep, broad, wide statement. God's image is on you. So you belong to God. That's like layer number one. The second layer is this, what they knew and what Jesus knew and what many of us here today know. I may need some help. Um, somebody needs, maybe need to Google this. Uh, what's the psalm? What's the psalm number that says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness, that's the old language, and the fullness thereof. The more modern English translations have the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Somebody Google that and give us a psalm number for those who are taking notes. Or maybe you know it. Some of you walking Bible encyclopedias go. Psalm number. Huh? Psalm 24. Read it, Kenny. Is it? Oh. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So we have, a, we have a nomination of Psalm 24. Can anyone confirm? Yeah? We have, a com- we have a confirmation. Psalm 24. All right. Very good. Okay, Psalm 24. If you're taking notes, you can write it in. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So now, let's go back to Jesus' statement. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. Well, Psalm 24 says what belongs to God. The earth and everything in it. What does that leave for Caesar? Not much. Nothing. Right. So that's, that's another completely legitimate way to read Jesus' answer. You got, this, you got this coin in your pocket, which represents a betrayal against the one true God. <laughs> give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. That is everything. Give God what belongs to God. That is everything. Everything. So, so what does that reading of this moment, what does that reading of this moment say about, let's just say, well, I don't want to touch. Well, okay, so just take those historical, what about like a real-time instance when we hear, when we might hear this phrase invoked, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto God that which is God's. Typically, when that phrase is invoked in the contemporary conversation, at least in our culture, it's like a... It's like a, a way to use a Bible verse to reinvoke the very modern, very American doctrine of separation of church and state, right? That's essentially what this verse is being used for. This verse is being used to forward that agenda that says people need to keep their religion out of their politics, keep these two things separate. Like that's deep in the American psyche, right? And this, this, this phraseology 
Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and unto God that which belongs to God. This, this phrase is used to support, fuel that very American, and not just America, but at least in terms of our culture, that ideology of keeping, uh, keep, you know, you, be a Christian if you want to, but keep your, keep your religion out of your politics. Can I say something? The only way, the only way that it becomes possible to keep the faith of Jesus Christ, right? And when I say faith of Christ, I'm talking about what we've been studying, the passion of Jesus, the things that Jesus cared about, what Jesus taught, what he lived, what he embodied, what he cared about. The only way to keep the consciousness of Christ out of politics is to convert the faith of Christ into something that it's not. Because the faith of Christ absolutely shapes how we, uh, how we relate to one another. That's what politics means. The, the, the word polis, the reason we call Minneapolis Minneapolis is because polis means city, right? So, so it, the, politics means how, how the city functions, how societies function with one another. Well, tell me what it is in Jesus' teaching that doesn't have to do with how people function together. It's, it's, it's virtually, virtually ubiquitous in the teaching of Christ. The only way that the faith of Jesus doesn't impact how we see and think about how it is that we function together as a, as a society is to turn the faith of Christ into something that it's not, which essentially, I think my observation, is that what we tend to do is we try to spiritualize everything Jesus said and ship it off into the future. Someone said the best way to anesthetize a doctrine is to ship it off into the future, right? And I think we've successfully done that, and we've essentially turned Jesus into like a rabbit's foot so that you go to heaven when you die. If you, if you accept Jesus, you go to heaven when you die. There, you've got that done. You've taken care of the religious part. Now, leave that, you know, in, uh, in the upstairs of your life, and then, you know, do the rest of your life leaving that out of it. But it just won't work. The more you pay attention to Jesus, the more you realize that, and again, that's, I, that's why Jesus invoked John the Baptist in his conversation in the temple. John the Baptist is a justice guy. That's the reason Jesus invoked the greed of the uh, religious leaders. And I don't know if we'll get there, but uh, later, one of the, the specific things that Jesus says about the, the scribes, he says, the scribes devour widows' houses. What the heck? Historians say it probably means because it was the scribes who knew how to write the legal documents for the loans that would be offered from the temple treasury. And then when the widows default on those loans, the scribes devour their houses. Man, this is human stuff. What Jesus is dealing with, what he's poking at, it's got him killed. It got him killed. We need to recognize that about this story. And so... Okay, so what are you saying, Kenyon? Are you saying that, that, um, that Christians should impose their faith on the entire society? Um, I'm not an expert on that question. I'll be the first one to say. Um, but here's what I would say. Uh, it depends on which Christianity. <laughs> Is anybody checking with me? Some of you are saying, like, like there's more than one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> there's more than one. <laughs> you think Jesus should be president? It depends on which Jesus. <laughs> right? Uh, the Christianity that looks like Jesus 
absolutely needs to it needs to soak through our society well like amos said like a uh, like an unending stream the kind of christianity that honors every person no matter who they are the kind of christianity that supports the have nots even at the uh, expense of the haves the kind of Christianity that will not allow someone to be hungry, the kind of Christianity that will not allow someone to be naked, the kind, that kind of Christianity, oh yeah, we need more and more and more and more of that in our society. That's what we need, yeah, for sure. So, 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 so this statement, everybody, is I think in the end, it is the opposite of the way that it's been metabolized and regurgitated throughout the more contemporary conversation. And I think if I could go back, I would say, Jesus, could you say it slightly differently? Like if you said the render unto God part first, that would have helped us like for 2,000 years. Give to God what belongs to God, and that's everything. So that last part wouldn't have, would have, you know what I mean? We never would have misunderstood. Whatever's left over, give to Caesar. Well, since the earth and everything in it belongs to God, that leaves nothing for Caesar. We would have been way, way better. But, you know, he didn't listen to me. He didn't ask. And he never will. So, okay. All right. So, uh, where are we? What time is it? How are we doing? Oh, uh, I want to do at least one more. Um, let's skip the one about the resurrection. Not because it's not interesting, but because the next one is more interesting to me. Okay? <laughs> let's do... <laughs> let's do, um, let's do uh, oh, yeah. Okay. So... We're still in chapter 12, verse 28. One of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus replied, the most important one uh, is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The legal expert said, well said, teacher. You have truthfully said that God is one and there's no other besides him. And to love God with all the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, you aren't far from God's kingdom. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, a couple of things going on here. Um, one is this, this moment uh, bucks the trend. Right here we have, here we have a story uh, where a, what's called a legal expert. Let's say this is a scribe. This is this is a Jewish elite who comes up and has this. I'm just going to call it. They have this warm fuzzy connection. Jesus and this and this religious elite person, this one particular member of the elite. And I think what's important about that, uh, and this is not the only instance. But even as the general trend, as Mark tells the story, and, it, and it's even probably more pronounced as you move through, and you know, like historically speaking, uh, depending on where you would put 
Matthew and Luke in terms of when they wrote in time, but there's a consensus among scholars that Mark probably wrote first, and then uh, Matthew or Luke, depending on where you'd put those, and then John being the the um, the final, the last, the most recent in, in terms of our time, uh, gospel. Uh, you see that pattern, the, the heat between Jesus and the religious leaders. But it's not, they're not monolithic. There are moments when certain Jewish elites connect with Jesus, and warmly so. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a Jewish elite person, and he'll, he'll offer his tomb uh, a real act of love and devotion toward the crucified Christ. So here you have this Jewish elite, a scribe, a legal expert, who comes and they have this connection. Uh, that's important for a lot of reasons. And let's just say, historically, tragically, um, you know, the, the early, earlier than us followers of Jesus tragically interpreted the broad narrative of what happened to Jesus in more or less these way oversimplified and horrible terms of saying essentially the Jews killed the Christ. And from that seed thought and from the perceived spiritual and religious authentication of that thought has flowed throughout the centuries all kinds of prejudice against the Jewish people, what we call anti-Semitism, the the tragic pinnacle of which would probably be the Holocaust. Um, but even, even that is it's not even factual. It's not true that all of the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. Some of them connected with him, and that includes this scribe. Now, what about the content? Um, it's important, once again, for us to realize that for someone to stand in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the first century, and say something like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. Anywhere in the Roman Empire in the first century, when you refer to the Lord, you're talking about Caesar. And so, for, for a Jewish person to say, yeah, there is a Lord, the Lord is one, he is the God of Israel, this is a risky, subversive thing to say. And so this scribe walks up to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? There is a Lord and he's one. He's the God of Israel. It's a bold, courageous, risky, dicey thing to say. And then for that scribe who's, let's just say, uh, his bread is buttered by the powers that be, right? That's his position in the mix which would go all, all the way up to uh, Caesar himself. And this scribe says, you've said it right. You got it right. Me and you, we're in on this thing. We realize that we do have a Lord. We do have a king. And he is God. And then the scribe, I think it is interesting, when the scribe, uh, the legal expert, when he repeats it, he says, to love God with all the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important. He adds this. It's much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings 
and sacrifices, which again, think about where they're standing, right? This is, this is Passover week, right? It's just, it's, they're just hours before the actual uh, recognition of Passover. I mean, the sacrifices are humming through the temple right now. I mean, there's people carrying animals and, ca- I mean, there's things going on. It smells like, it smells like a barbecue right now around the temple, right? And so for this scribe, this scribe to say, uh, to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, and he just adds this, it's much more important than all the burned offerings, right? You can smell them, you can hear it, you can, that's the whole enterprise that's going on, and this right here is much more important than all kinds of burned offerings. I mean, this is, this is an incredible moment, and then After the legal expert has finished speaking, Jesus says, you aren't far from God's kingdom. This reminds me of one of my seminary professors uh, who's from Jamaica. Uh, Dr. Grizzle is his name. And um, there was one time we were in class, and this was when I was much younger, a long, long time ago. One time we were in class, and he asked a question of the class, and I gave some answer. And he looked at me, and he said, you are not far from the kingdom, my brother. Every time I read this, I think of Dr. Grizzle. You are not far from the kingdom. It's beautiful, isn't it, how Jesus can talk about the kingdom of God. Like, like we, know, we know that, in fact, the kingdom of God is not a location, right? We know that the kingdom of God is this healing phenomenon, right, coming from heaven to earth. That's the kingdom of God, Jesus. But he can talk about the kingdom being among you, the kingdom is in you, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is here, right? And so now he says you are not far from the kingdom, as if we can speak about the kingdom of God in geographic terms. And okay, and and that works for us. Because I think there's something in us that we want to know that we're making progress. We want to know that we're moving towards something beautiful. We want to know that we're moving like out of what is and into what's more, into what's more whole, into what's more right side up. Like, like I want to be moving out of upside down and into right side up. I want to be moving out of brokenness and into wholeness. I want to be moving out of darkness and into light. I want to be moving, right? Like, like we want to, we, that there's something in us that, another word for it is hope, right? Like, like the, the human soul uh, requires hope to live. We want to know that I'm, that this is going somewhere, that we're making progress. And so I think it's, it's substantial that Jesus responds to this young legal, this, well, I presume young, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't, but this legal expert, by saying you're not far from the kingdom. Keep coming, keep coming, keep thinking, keep hoping, keep dreaming, keep pressing, keep coming, no matter what, keep coming. It's available to you, to all of us. You're not far from the kingdom. Amen? Um, Okay, that's as far as we can get. How's that? Um. So let me just say again, like I said, I said this last week, but I had a thought during this whole preparation time, and I think all this is all like wrapped up with Lent and all that, but certainly with this study series, I had a thought that I think I would call it an epiphany. You have to be the judge of that, but 
But the thought was basically, let's just spend this time just telling the story and let it do what it do, you know, in all of our hearts and minds. Because, because really one way of saying what Lent is all about is it's about retuning and realigning ourselves with the passion of Christ, with what Jesus cared about, so that we, so that we feel how Jesus feels, we see how Jesus sees, and ultimately, so that we walk and live as Jesus walked and lived. I mean, that's like an expanded way of saying, I think, what a very good understanding of what the word repentance means. Think about your thinking and change your direction. Change to what? Change to the consciousness of Jesus. Care about what he cared about. That's the whole proposition. And so I think in the reports of Holy Week, not just Mark, but all of them, we get like this concentrated glimpse into what it is that Jesus cares about. The Sermon on the Mount being another good concentrated example. But um, So that's what we get. So my prayer is, and I, again, so I'm intentionally not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to intentionally not tell you what to do with these stories. I'm trying to unpack the meaning in context. But what I'm asking the Spirit to do in your life um, is to do what He wants to do with these stories in your heart. And the thing that I would ask you to do is uh, be aware of that. Like, nobody's going to grab you by the collar, right, and shake you down and push you into the Jesus agenda for your future. That's not going to happen. It's going to happen through a sensitive hearing and sensing what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and an intentional following through. That's how it happens. That's how we move toward the kingdom. Entering into the consciousness of Christ and putting one foot in front of the other. That's what's in common for all of us. And the way it's expressed, I think that's where the variety is. And so that's why I'm holding back with specific recipes for what this looks like. But I'm asking the Holy Spirit to speak to each of us and to transform each of us more and more into the faith of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.